Hi, I'm Ben Tritt, CEO of ArtMatter, a creative technology company for the visual arts. At the core of our culture is an ecosystem that brings together artists, engineers, and business leaders. Hi, I'm Michael Apfel, partner and founder of Redcap Films. Like the majority of creatives, I love the tools I use and how they make my life easier, but I have little understanding of how they actually work, how they're made, and how to make them better. We're going to be interviewing the most creative minds in art, tech, and business to find out what's behind the curtain by asking one simple question. So what do you do? Oh, David's just joined, so we're going to bring okay. him in in a second. But the idea is, is uh, so what do you do? So I'm going to, is most people, the first question they ask is, so what do you do? So we're going to this conversation. I know David can hear us right now. I'm going to bring you in a second. But okay. I'm an ignoramus in this. I, I'm happy happy to be an ignoramus. We've got Kate here, we've got Ben here, we've got me here. I'm going to okay. bring in Dave now. And David now, here we go. There we go. Hi, David. How are you? Hi, David. How are you? Good. Good, nice sunny day. Um, hi everyone, welcome to uh, the show. So, what do you do? Um, my name is Michael Atfall, and uh, Ben's here. Obviously, Kate here. Um, David, to give you some background, I'm an ignoramus on this. So, literally, I don't know anything about you. Uh, I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Sorry. That's good. I don't know anything about you. I'm I'm, I'm the most successful, intelligent person you'll ever meet. It's uh, uh so um. Uh, with that in mind, um, David Eisenman, go for it. Tell me, what do you do? I've never met you before. What am I? I'm some version of a, an architect slash filmmaker, animator, futurist, technologist, uh, all combined. Okay. I don't want to sound rude. I don't have a clue what that means. So I was a computer graphics supervisor at Pixar for 17 and a half years. My wife and I own and run uh, an architecture firm in Berkeley. And I've been at Google developing immersive virtual reality platforms and films for the last five years. And in the last year doing uh, artificial intelligence uh, conceptual design. Okay, I'm, I'm mildly baffled here for a second. Um, give, me, give me one second. No, no don't be rude. I mean, it's a whole platform of this, if you don't mind, because obviously um, Ben knows you. Ben knows what you do. Ben knows your background. I've been in the same, hopefully, with all the other guests. I'm going to deliberately stay in the dark with this whole thing. But I, I, without sounding too fanboyish right now, the biggest name you mentioned there was not architecture. It was uh, Pixar, because everybody knows Pixar. Um yeah, you know, I've had I've had uh, very young people come in and interview, and when I say the movies that I worked on, I com some comments I've gotten where, oh, my nanny used to play that for me when no I way. was, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm not that old, but can we maybe we can just have just have the uh, David the um, the short list of the films that um, that you have worked on at uh, at Pixar and maybe. Uh, with just a few uh, a few yeah, anecdotes of some of some of those pieces that contributed personally from your from your uh, maybe so i started uh on a bug's life which was their second film and so then from there to toy story 2 to i ran the reef unit which is the first quarter of the movie on finding nemo um the all of the environments everything you see for ratatouille helped out with the Incredibles, Monsters, Inc., 
and then supervised uh, again um, Toy Story 3, Monsters University, um, some unnamed stuff that never got out. And then the last one I was working on was Piper before I left. Can, can I ask you a question on this? Because you've, you've, you've dropped a lot of stuff just there. You, you mentioned, what was it, Reef Supervisor? Yes. So there are four production units on Finding Nemo. So a production unit in live action film is sort of a, a, a unit, you know, you can break it up by location or by type or something like that. So you'd have four independent, you have multiple independent units that operate around the world or whatever. In this case, we broke up... Um, the structure of the film so that there were four locations. There was a reef unit, there was a dentist office unit, there was the open ocean unit, and then there was like another one. And so I was the coral reef one. What, what, did, what, what does that mean when you say you, were, you, you literally were like, because, um, you know, I've seen coral reefs and I've seen that, you know, everyone's seen like the, you know, either the David Attenborough or the Jacques Cousteau. Um, it is Jacques Cousteau, right? You know, when we see, when we speak it is. Cousteau. I'll find, humorously, I did a documentary with his son for Finding Nemo afterwards, but. <laughs> humorously. Uh, I mean, it's, so. Jean Michel Cousteau, I think. So, are we, it just, just so I can understand and I can put it into context, are you saying you're the guy that makes. It's better, Brian. I'm not even getting. I'm trying to figure this whole thing out as we're going along. Are you saying that you're the guy that says we need to take reality and represent it in the digital forum so that people, everyone, everyone who may or may not know what a reef is, you need to represent it both realistically, but also in an animation sense. Is that what we're talking about right now? Uh, exactly. That's exactly it. Nice. Uh, <laughs> okay. How the heck does anyone do that? I don't know what your background is. I don't have a clue about any of it. Um, you know, a lot of it has to do, at least for me, it has to do with, um, how do you say this? Basically, you're an in, a person's perception of their space around them. So like for me with architecture, you know, I look at that through layered spaces. So, or simultaneous connections with your environment. And that could be sight, sound, smell, history. It could be boundaries. It could be any, any could meaning. It could be emotional, could be any sort of all of that together. And then visually, you know, you can structure that. So the best example I have is Frank Lloyd Wright's um, Taliesin. And he's actually famous for a number of things. But one of the things that he was famous for was when you progress from one room to the next, in order for you to have that aha moment, um, you would actually, he would step down the scale of the environment. So it could be a doorway or something like that. So if you're going from a living room into sort of this grand hall at Taliesin, um, you actually, the doorways are smaller than you'd want them to be in terms of like it's constricting so that when you walk into the room, it's that more surprising, right? So that is sort of a way of controlling space so that someone has an experience. And it's the same thing in film like you have filmic space and uh in this sense it was really about how to get someone at least in 2d with a 3d representation of uh, a graphic representation of coral reefs how can we get someone to understand that and then the first the first test we did we did three tests at on funding nemo first um some were in my group and some weren't one was the coral reef to make it look like a coral reef one was to make 
a whale look like wa whale in water and one was to make water ocean right did you win, did you win an oscar for that because i'm not kidding it was like beautiful I'm, i i don't know if you are you personally but i'm saying did they win like oh, yeah yeah that thing won so many things it's absurd um but yeah it it won the oscar for that one it was um but what we found out really quickly almost immediately that it was actually really easy i mean it was really really easy to uh replicate uh photoreal nature. So we came back with tests that looked like a coral reef and it looked like um, ocean waves and it looked like a whale in water. And we immediately realized that, okay, that's, but we can't tell a story in that because it's coral reefs are, I mean, it's a smorgasbord of color and space. And you, in film, you have, to, you're trying to control somebody's eye and perception in an animation, particularly when you're trying to stage acting little characters like fish who will blend into that background, you need to structure it in a way that, going back to the visual layering thing, that they stand out or are supported by the environment around them without it becoming too invasive unless that's your intention. Um, so then we had to simplify, we basically had to simplify nature. And we struggled on that for quite a while. Um, I did, we did a number of tests and then one night I made a mistake with lighting. Uh, you know, in terms of lighting the scene. And the mistake was I didn't turn the, no the, the correct number of ambient lights or something on. And so it was really just silhouetted, right? Um, and you guys just disappeared. Are you still there? Yeah. yeah oh, okay. Yeah, so it was really silhouetted. And then I looked at that when it came back in the morning and thought, holy cow, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. And it was a dark, layered, silhouetted reef. So suddenly you could see the structure of the reef, but not actually all the detail. And that was something where you could say, okay, this is how I can control an audience's experience of this by selectively revealing this sort of detail and um, getting it so they understand the nature of the space they're in. So we started down that route. Um, and so I took, uh, you know, we broke down the coral reef into three shapes. I think if I recall correctly, there were like round shapes, big flat shapes and verticals. And the combination of those was the visual structure that was the simplified reef. And then on top of that, um, all of the surface colors and textures were an infinite variation of uh, stuff that we could paint at will. Um, so that's how we started. Uh, um, so a quick question: When, when, when you had that, you know, realization, kind of uh, a happy accident. I think everyone in the creative space is familiar with in their own, in their own domain. Did that then have an impact on, or how much of an impact did that have on um, any of the technological issues? Was it purely a stylistic thing, or did that have real impact in terms of the the way you were using the technologies? It. So when you're building something that it's like a computer model of this space for film assets, per se, um, you know, there's a there's a, a real budget and resources attached to how much it would cost to make all of that stuff. So when we sort of came up with the idea of like, here's a simplified structure that could tell our story um, that actually reduced sort of costs and um, uh, 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 investment in people uh, in a certain whole section of the film, 
but it increased costs elsewhere. So like in terms of the paint, the, the surfaces and details, what I realized is if, if we are going to simplify the world down to a few geometric shapes, um, in order for us to not, for your eye not to fixate on those sort of prototypes that you, those archetypes that you kind of keep seeing showing up, which I hate when that happens in film, then I needed infinite variability on uh, Just so the textures. When you say stuff picking up, because I'm not beginning, I'm a total, I, 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 I am a total ignoramus with this whole sort of stuff. What sort of stuff picks up when you say it, like visually, when you say you hate seeing this, what, what are we talking about? Oh, so let's say somebody's making, I don't know, any other, just pick some non-Pixar CG movie. Uh, you could tell somebody's made an oak tree and they've copied it a thousand times, right? Um, because the, the world has this sort of um, live theater uh, representation of like, oh, we've made four trees because that's what we could afford. Um, so in order to actually trick the eye... Uh, into believing that this is a structured reality that's approaching sort of a believable reality. In my opinion, what we did was bring sort of infinite variation to color and texture that we could paint at will across everything, right? So f in form and structure, we can control what was happening and how it felt. And then through color and texture, we could direct, um, basically further direct that, but also hide and make everything look infinitely um, uh, like in nature, like a, a varied uh, reality. When, uh, when we had the chance to meet over in, uh, in uh, Mountain View, I, I shared the anecdote that my business partner and I first really clicked um, in uh, Excitement Over Creativity Inc. as one of our favorite books. Um, and while I assumed that that was a, um, a rosy picture um, of the way things went, I think you probably confirmed that, you know, to that effect. You shared some anecdotes with us um, about life in Pixar. And I, as you were telling me that, all I could think was, that's the book I really want to read, um, that I hope you write. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit. Basically, the the main thing for our perspective about Creativity Inc. that was exciting was the, I guess by default, by default of the you know, nature of the business, you have in-house technical and, and creative needing to have the right synergy in order to produce the magic um, that you do. And, the, and the, the, the creation of that culture, of that ecosystem is so difficult and, and so exciting when you get it right. And it seemed like Pixar was the paradigm of that in our, in my lifetime, really. Um, and so you being just so at the heart of that formation from the really from the beginning, um, could you share a little bit about what 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 that's like, and maybe where you where you see that uh, happening in other places and, and the future? I don't know, just little snippets. I know it's a huge question, but you know, I think it's a question of. Um when a company, I'm going to say this, when a company is young and the desire is to explore the world of the possible, there's a much different mindset than when a company's not young and the goal is not exploring the world of the possible, but um, 
delivering on a deadline or reducing cost or or making a particular type of movie because that's what you're expected to do. Um, and I think Creativity Inc. is fabulous uh, ideas and it was very much like that in the early days. Uh, and I mean, I think the best example I've got of that is Pixar is an interesting place because the whole tenure of its existence, it's known, like one side of it is known uh, inside that they are becoming too pragmatic and too rigid and too structured or too institutional. And they fight against that, but at the same time, they become those things, right? So Nemo was... I think I jumped on that in, I mean, that came out in 2003, and I jumped on that in 1999. So Toy Story 1 only it came out in 1995. So it's a really young company, right? Right. Yeah. So at that time, Finding Nemo was this incubator project where its goal was to already fight against how we make films. Because you'd hear things in the hallways or at meetings of like, well, this is the way we do things. And our response would be, what the heck are you talking about? This is the way we do things. You've made two movies. So, <laughs> I, I, so you know, and, and so it was already a litmus test to try to figure out, okay, how do we inject some of this innovative culture back in to make sure that we keep it fresh, right? And Nemo was very much a figure out other ways you could do this. And, and so we did. So we took a normal at least Pixar's normal production model of set of departments, and we threw it all up in the air. And one of the ideas was that, at least for the Reef group that I ran, was that instead of having a number of different disciplines, like you'd have somebody that would do lighting, you'd have someone that would do um, the camera work, someone that would model the set, someone that would do the shading and textures, and someone that would paint, and, you know, and so on and so on, right? And these are all different departments, like historically. And what happens in a company structure like that, you end up with those department figureheads and they have their own budgets and their own agendas and you end up, there's an administrative cost to getting things done. And what we found was that, or one of our ideas was that um, people have multiple skill sets. Um, certainly artists do. And at Pixar, it would be something like, um, you know, I had thought people could do three things, you know, like th whatever those combined three different things. And maybe the three things was maybe it was lighting and modeling and shading, or maybe it was camera and lighting and set dressing, you know, combining these sort of three skill sets. And so I'd formed, we'd formed a team around these sort of varied skill, pack, skill sets. And I picked people that had, that could do a few things, right? And then what we found was, or at least what the approach was, that if I asked the question in a different way to an artist in particular, like, so here's an example, like this room that I'm in. If I had taken this to a bunch of those departments and said, here, I want you to model shade and paint that cabinet behind me. And if you know, there's trains in there, but and there's probably like 30 trains. Someone's going to make 30 trains and they're going to color and paint and all of that stuff. And what happens is all of that gets broken out into separate sort of functions. And then individual artists work on all those things. And then somebody else puts it all back together. And um, the cost of doing that, I, I will guarantee you, stake my reputation on, is always more, uh, more and more waste 
than if I had asked the question of, um, here, you two, three, two or three people with this sort of varied skill set, you know, maybe I have the shader and the lighter and the, the modeler together, and I say, build this room, um, and I need it in, you know, we've got, I don't know, four weeks to do it. Um, you end up with a much different thing um, that costs a lot less because they're going to have to, by nature of the assignment and question that you've asked, you've asked, build this room, not build this train set, right? Um, you, you end up making compromises along the way. So that a lot of like at least Nemo's Coral Reef was built around that belief of if I ask the question of, I know what these shots should, are going to be yeah. realistically, and the question is, I'm going to give it to these couple people, not 20 people, like three people, and ask them to build that scene. And that is a much more collaboratively induced sort of request uh, than a, me splitting all of that up into the 100 different props that it's going to take to do that and then assign that out to all of these groups to assemble it back together. So that's what... Nemo was sort of built on, but we did learn that people could do not three things, it was more like two. So, you know, the sort of college major and a minor structure with an occasional double major really sort of fit, was true, is accurate. So, oh yeah, this, love this shot. Um, these are, I did things like this at night. So I did this with what well, was me after the stuff was built in this flexibility at uh you know these infinitely flexible models yeah. uh this was a guy named chris bernardi uh and myself and then sort of of course of our, our director of photography for lighting um and of course the animation so there's not many people that did this after all the stuff was built but you know usually in the evenings on these kind of beauty shots there was some things that I would just sit and make, like the opening shot of the anemone uh, I did with uh, um, the director of photography for camera, um, just so we could figure that out. So I've, I have a question for you then, um, if it's okay. Uh, you, you said, did you say you did work on the original Toy Story or no? Did you, was... No, 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 no. Actually, that's what uh, sparked my interest because I'd never seen something like that before. So, so that brings me, uh, so, so, okay, great. So you saw a transition from one era to another but essentially three eras um i'm trying to figure this out right now in my own head like i said i'm a novice um i mean uh ben knows this about me and i think kate knows this about me. i'm obsessed with animation in general i just i um i mean going back to you know the start of it i, I just love it and we and pixar was a revolution but not just a revolution in the sense that, it, you know, it, it changed storytelling in general because, you know, it's, it was a virtual world you were creating as opposed to a hand-drawn thing. You, you were there for a transition from technology, from being literally hand-drawn to what it is today. And by the way, today, it, I don't know, you know, I, 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 I mean, to me, as far as I know, the last major release that happened in the animation world, just because I'm a nerd, was The Princess and the Frog, which was a hand-drawn animation which i thought was a great film but um you know you, you saw it. like how on earth does anyone yourself obviously in this case get from a generation which is you know the walt disney's the, the you know and whoever else it is don bluth's the hand-drawn and the simpsons by the way obviously with the fox 
to, to where we are today? Because, you know, you've seen a shift in technology. You've literally overseen it. You said you were fascinated, Toy Story fascinated you, which was in the real world to floating objects in the sea. Can you tell us a little bit about, because I think that's pretty cool. I don't, I have I'm, I'm no idea about this. You know, um, since we were making the tools as we were developing these films, um, a lot of it didn't look like, I mean, it wasn't structured or, or made like traditional animation was. Um, of course, the computer graphics tools for animators um, were sort of styled off of things that they had before, you know, that they would hand do, or we would do stuff in, back in the day, it wasn't Photoshop, it was um, Adobe Paint and, or whatever, Amazon Paint or whatever it was called, and yeah. some other things. And early Maya was actually, you know, an uh, a, uh, what was that company? Uh, it was just conceptual <laughs> back then. Uh, prior to Maya, it was, and prior to Autodesk, it was uh, whatever it was, um, alias Wavefront. Um, and so in those days, uh, you were really sort of thinking it up and figuring out what we'd want, right, and making it. And sort of what's interesting now is, like, a lot of us can just sit down and like open up any paint program, for instance, is a good example, like Photoshop, and within yeah. minutes figure out how to do it. And a lot of people are sort of like amazed by that. And I think, well, it's actually all, it's a very small group of people that made that back in the day, you know, over in Marin and, and whatnot. And there was a tight collaboration amongst all of the artists. So it was really sort of a cultural um, movement of how this software thinks, right? And so it's not like we've had a major leap out of that. Like all of the stuff we see now, maybe it's gotten better. You know, the paint programs are better and there's, you know, Photoshop certainly has more and more and more stuff, but yeah. it still thinks the same. Like it's still structurally the same as it was. Same thing with Maya. Maya, you know, expands on its abilities, but a lot of that was really just born out of how the animation community thought. So that's sort of how that developed. I have a question on that. And this, by the way, this totally fascinates me, just so you know. So whatever you say right now might impress me beyond belief or devastate me, just so you know. Okay? Um, That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, but fine. I have no problem giving you responsibility as long as I don't have it. Um, uh, so, but I, I, I mean, bear in mind, like I said, I've always been into animation. Anyone who has the creativity can animate. And they can draw something if they really want to, you know, even if it's a basic stick figure, they can do it. But technology is something completely different. Like you, for someone who's going to do something digitally, which is what you do, it's completely different. But I also don't know, and I was thinking about this recently, do the people who made the technology, are they also the artists or do they work together with the artists? Or, or I mean, I really don't know. Like, are the artists the ones who have to become the uh the tech guys as well like what what where does the integration happen um no i mean it is a little split up but not necessarily so i mean there are core engineers that write the stuff um but they're usually paired with the production artists that are saying this is what we want um so it's usually not like off in a vacuum. Um, same thing with even some of these commercial products like the Autodesk products. You know, we'd have sort of an arrangement with them uh, where Pixar would develop stuff or we'd call them up and say, I need a site engineer. 
um, to come and write our own version of this because we want to do these specific things. And then sooner or later, those features will show up in the commercial product, you know, product from uh, Maya, for instance. So it's, it's, it's always been sort of a back and forth, and I think that works best um, because I think engineers, uh, by nature of who they are almost, um, the way they look at problems and challenges, it really does break it down to the core of something. And there's some great innovation that can come out of that. But there always needs to be this layer of why. Like, why are we doing this? We Sure, you can do this, but why are we doing this? Because it has to look real. Even if it's imagination, it's like whoever sees it, even if it like blows their mind, they still have to see like a uh, an element of like, oh, they can... Like, I mean, you know, the obvious things are like, you know, even a painting. If you look at a Van Gogh, it's not reality. Like you look at uh, Starry Night, which is like one of his most famous paintings. It's, it's you're literally seeing the wind blow and blast the stars. I, I, like, I don't know if that's the same thing with you with animations. Like you, you're making essentially man, imagination with the animators and with the tech guys. I mean, there has been um, a push in recent years to go more photoreal with uh, computer uh, animation representation. And, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, I'm against it, personally. I'm sorry, I don't want to sound too opinion. I, I love, I, the reason I think animation so is the purest, you're getting my opinion right now. This has become an opinion. <laughs> the reason I think animation is the purest form of entertainment is because it's detached from reality and you can and you can make it whatever you want. I love that. I'm not even kidding. I, I, I'll, I'll watch Five Will Goes West and An American Tale, which for the record is a talking mouse, you know, and I love it because, you know, it's so far from reality that I can just completely detach. I love it. I'm not kidding. I love it. You know, it's funny as we've had parents and other people come into the studio and I remember somebody's parent asking me, how did you get the little rats to talk? and uh, didn't have the heart to tell them of like, it, they weren't real. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, and someone else said the same thing of like, those ants, like how did you get those ants to act? And I'm sitting like, did they really not yeah. get, get I mean, this, that, is yeah. the suspended disbelief sort of- That's, that, that's the highest form of flattery, uh, David, I, I don't know. Um, so uh, one question I have, and in, in uh, I feel like the period we're in now, I see two trends, at least uh, two things that I hope are trends. One, increasingly towards CGI um, in film, where I think there was, up to very recently, a lot of skepticism, um, uh, not in animation, but in film proper, about the use of CGI. And I, it seems to me like there's a increasing belief in it, in the aesthetics of it as being satisfying. Um, so just moving away from the physical more towards the virtual. On the other hand, I'm seeing as coming from the plastic arts, from, from, from painting, um, the shift uh, from digital to the physical world, um, wanting to move people out of the screens and engage more in the physical world. So we're, we're on the, in terms of art matter, we're on the fabrication side of things. So we want to open up that space to, you know, make uh, physical stuff a lot more uh, engage with the uh, with the body and not just these machines that you throw out files to and kind of you know 
leave. Um, do you have any feeling personally, um, and maybe within the industry or industries that you're involved with about those, those, two, those two different directions? You know, I think the industry is kind of confused at the moment, um, especially with COVID sort of showing up and nobody being able to go to movie theaters. You know, yeah. you, you do end up with a number of purists who believe that, you know, it'll all to just go back to film because people will have that desire and need to go do that. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, it's a big sort of ordeal to go to a movie theater. So you're seeing the younger generation or others who are perfectly willing to watch uh, and engage in this stuff uh, in their houses or, you know, with a few other people rather than an entire movie theater. I think the industry is confused. Um, they're not sure where it's going to go. And they're looking for ways to sort of engage that. You saw a 3D TV sort of fad that we went through, I don't know, was it 10 years ago? Within the last 10 years, there was that sort of 3D, you put 3D glasses on and you can watch your stuff in 3D. And that was sort of... That was a big thing with... Yeah, I saw those in Costco, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that lasted for a while. I never bought into it, but that was sort of one reach out into that engaging people in a different way, sort of bringing stuff spatially to them. Um, and then you saw it we, the most recently has been the virtual reality and augmented reality push, uh, that which is what I was part of at uh, Google. And uh, a lot of that sort of built on those notions of how do we engage, not someone just to put them in another world, but how do we tell them stories or how do we um, structure an experience for them in a way that they could understand, but it could be spatially, right? Um, or interactively or something. And that was sort of where that was going. I still think the industry is confused. I think technology is a little too clumsy right now, uh, you know, for all of that interactive stuff. The, it, it's a science experiment still, and it costs a lot of money. And, you know, my mother and grandparents of people aren't, they don't want to put this stuff on um, to have this sort of specialized uh, equipment. But, you know, in our architecture firm, for, though, uh, we do uh, use virtual reality and augmented reality to show people uh, their, their houses, their spaces, um, in a, because, you know, a lot of people have difficulty understanding 2D drawings uh, and so this is a way where they can sort of engage in that in a different way. And so that's shown up in the last couple of years. Um, and then at, at uh, certainly at my workplace now, it's not, not just about movies, but about everything. I think the sort of idea of getting us away from these screens and devices is sort of a prevalent desire. Although I don't think anybody really knows how to do that. Like I don't want my kids on their mobile phones all day long and being addicted to it. And I don't want to have to read a thousand emails and I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to be tied to these things. Um, so there's a question about ambient and computing. So how can, how can this stuff happen in the devices around you so that you're not dependent on one particular thing? Um, and maybe in a way it can kind of free you back up to connect with 
who and what you want to connect with rather than what you have to connect with. So that's, I think, the current sort of trend out there, push to figure out what that means. So, you, I mean, look, I mean, I go back to what I was saying, um, just to give you a context to this whole thing regarding, so what do you do? Kate showed a, Kate who's joined us here, showed us something a couple of weeks ago, literally blew my mind, um, literally blew my mind. It, she, she pulled out a notepad um, and then folded out a keyboard that you can sync with your computer or your um, smartphone or anything, and you can literally play piano on it. And but the thing is, there's so many more applications to her technology because you you know it can be used to DJ. She's got got this blooming amazing cool stuff on the TED Talks and stuff that I was like, no way. But when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's a real the 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 keyboard on the piano. I thought to me, that's like that's an application in the real world. With you, I'm trying to figure out what the future is because the thing is, for for more than 25 years now with Pixar, and then you said you went to Google. You're saying everything was virtual, but now they're trying to figure out not just make it virtual, but to integrate it and implement it in real life. Like you know, you said with your architecture company. I mean, you've got a whole background since Bugs Life and Finding Nemo of virtual world. And I'm trying to figure out what's the application for you now with everything you're doing. I mean, I literally, uh, for the record, I'm not sure how are we going to integrate this, and and how much is it going to be virtual world going to be integrate integrated in our real life? Because it sounds like uh, you know, you said you're selling you're selling products through architecture to customers through showing it virtually. I don't know what the application is in the real world now. I think if I mean for me, when technology is able to make that leap from a necessity like this thing that you have to have like this a phone everybody's now needs a phone or something right um to something that just enables other stuff to happen that you need to happen i think there's a here's an example like the moment i i waited till maybe the fifth generation of the apple watch to buy it and then i put it on and i would have to say i don't i don't love the the watch but what it did do immediately, at least when I was in my office, I didn't have to walk around with my phone. Uh, you know, it suddenly, in a tactile way, the watch can sort of keep me connected to things that need to happen. And within, with an interruption that's a quarter of a second, like, oh, your wife's calling, and then I'm aware that she's calling and I need to call her back, rather than this phone buzzing at me all the time. Uh, and I think that was, at least for me, the, one of the sparks of like, okay, well, if technology can start doing that, right, where it frees me up from the dependency on this sort of information street overload, um, but we can give people back sort of a, I don't know, curated or um, uh, experience that's meaningful to them with the information that they're interested with, then I think that's helps makes people's lives better. Um, so for instance, like I, I mean, if I look, were looking at my phone right now, I literally have probably 5,000 emails in my inbox, right? Uh, that I haven't either paid attention to or skimmed. I don't need that. Like who needs that kind of thing? Could you imagine if that was real mail, what that would be like showing up on my door, 5,000 letters sitting, you know, on my- It's just a lawsuit. Yeah, it is. It's just a lawsuit. And I think those sort of correlations are important because that's really what is happening, right? Uh, 
someone can understand I've got 5,000 letters sitting on my front porch, but the notion of 5,000 in my inbox, it's like, well, how long is it going to take you to open and read that stuff? And what a waste of time. So I think a lot of technology, I think we've gotten to the point where things are proliferating in technology so easily. Things just get faster, more complicated. You can do more and more and more. But the problem is it hasn't reduced where our attention should focus on. Like all it's done is cause us to have to focus on everything. And I think what at least some conversations that I'm part of and others are in the technology world are how do we bring that back to curating uh, so that you can focus on stuff that is important to you in a way that is not overwhelming. Um, yeah. Just sorry, but I don't know if you, Ben. Do you have any other questions? Because something's on no, my mind. I know that I know that uh, David, you're um, soon going to be requested uh, elsewhere. So just uh, wanted to wrap up with the last last thoughts here. Um, Michael, do you have a question you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I'm like, I'm fascinated by one thing, which is like I don't have a clue what your background is. I don't have a clue how you got into this whole thing. With uh, you know, you said you've got three things going on, which stick in my mind now: architecture, Pixar, Google. And, and, you know, they're three, you know, they, they might be, for all I know, completely integrated, I guess, technologies, you know, art forms, whatever it is. But you've got something going. I don't have a clue how anyone gets into that and, 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 and how someone ends up in that. Like, do you have a tech background that's legitimate? Do you have an art background? That might have been a good place to start the interview. Yeah. Um, let's end the interview with that. Yeah. But, yeah, David, if, if maybe you could, you could kind of summarize by saying how, how does someone with such a diverse range of experiences um, incorporate that into one 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 career one one identity I guess it for me it's always been as to where I want to spend my energy right and uh, you know my passion was in designing spaces for people uh, and whether that's a physical material form like in architecture or whether that is a virtual world like a coral reef to me it's the same thing and, you know, and the stuff that we've been doing lately with the virtual reality and augmented reality, even then that's an extension of a similar sort of concept of if I'm sort of creating these personal spaces for people in ways that um, either tell an important story that prompts an emotion or something, then that's really what's driven me. Um, but, you know, I was also in architecture at a time when hand-drawn architecture was dying like literally dying. And in, you know, I think I graduated in 96. And um, since that was dying, there were, you know, AutoCAD and all this other stuff was out there, but not prevalent so much. But the moment I joined firms and my wife joined firms, it was, it all became architecture, right? I mean, it started being digital uh, architecture. And so yeah. that was, that was a transition in that industry. And then Pixar at the same time, you know, they were hiring when I, when I reached out, I just wrote them a letter, but when I reached out to them, um, they were hiring people with um, uh, physical design degrees, like industrial designers, architects, uh, illustrators, because they didn't have a degree in computer. There was no degrees that existed in computer whatever blah. It was you're a computer scientist or you were an artist, right? Okay. And for me, I was somewhere in between. Like I, I knew and then had worked on digital platforms for design in making spaces. 
And there's not a big leap from going between that to 3D worlds. So anyway, for me, it was the same thing. I just spoke the language of both sides when I entered Pixar. It was like, oh, I could talk to you about computer science and I can talk to you about art and we can figure out in the middle where, where they meet. Um, yeah. So cor correct me if I'm wrong right now, just to wrap this up, because like I said, the whole thing is the idea of, so what do you do? I'm trying to figure this out right now. Tell me if I'm wrong, because I might be totally wrong. You make spaces for people or virtual worlds to live in, in their own environments, whether it's in architecture, it's houses and uh, buildings. And if it's in the virtual world, for example, Finding Nemo or, or Bugs Life, it's actual environments which are realistic for them to live in and then to exist in. Is that right? Yes. Yes. How's that? <laughs> I mean, I spent 45 minutes trying to figure that out. I was like, okay, I'm trying to figure, okay. Uh, how did I do? Spaces is uh, is definitely the key, the key here. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'll, I think that's awesome. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back and uh, I'm gonna watch uh, Bugs Life again for the first time in a while. And uh, I'm gonna like, uh, be a little more analytical, if you don't mind, and, and judgmental. By the way, I might, I might judge. You should be. You should be. Yeah, but, uh, Ben, you got anything else? I had a great time. I like. Uh, I, I, I'm not kidding. I don't like. Uh, I, I've never met you before, David. I think uh, it's wonderful meeting you. Yeah, I mean, look, of course, of course. But uh, you know, I, I had a great time. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much, David. We, we, uh, in general, are um, exploring in the interviews the this connection between between digital and physical. And uh, Dr. Kate Stone behind me, who we didn't really have the chance to introduce properly, we you know, interviewed Kate, she's awesome. um, before, mm -hmm. who's building interfaces um, that are essentially printed posters, but are, that look like printed posters, but behind them is a whole digital interface. And so she's making the digital disappear. Um, so, you know, the thoughts that you had were just a, a perfect, uh, perfect addition. Um, so we hope to, you know, revisit it uh, later with, Maybe uh, some more clues about uh, where that where that bridge is is leading us. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you all. It was wonderful. Wonderful talking with you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.